Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank. I'm here with someone very special. It's an honor to have you on the show, Dr. Avi Loeb. Thank you for having me. That's a great pleasure. Um, I, there's so much, so many questions I have for you. I'm sure I've listened to so many of your interviews um, countless times, and I know everyone asks you the same question about uh, the comet that you deemed as extraterrestrial or from a lost civilization. I'm not above the rest. I'm probably going to ask you some questions about that too. But something that really piqued my interest was artificial life or um, you said synthetic life, some type of kind of recreation or clones. I've heard you mentioned a couple of times in some interviews. I know you said like hypothetically speaking, but is that a possibility, synthetic life or maybe another recreation? Yeah, in fact, uh, it's being worked on in our laboratories. And um, uh, a colleague of mine, Jack Shostak, used to be at Harvard University, just moved to the University of Chicago, uh, is getting very close to producing synthetic uh, cells of life. And, uh, you know, we have just one century of uh, modern science. And you can imagine that within the coming century, we will produce uh, synthetic life. And it offers uh, a, a very important uh, um, development because um, uh, in physics, we discovered the laws of physics by uh, experimenting in the laboratory. And then it turned out that they apply to the universe at large and they allowed us to understand uh, the universe, how it started and where is it going. And um, in much the same way, our imagination about possible forms of life could be expanded from what we find here on earth uh, because that was just a perhaps a, a random occurrence, you know, out of the soup of chemicals on earth, we got some type of life. But in principle, in laboratories, we can produce other forms of life under different circumstances that were never realized on earth, out of, you know, in different liquids, out of different combinations. You know, it's just like a recipe book. Uh, you can put the same ingredients together at a different sequence and uh, also apply heat during the process and uh, get very different cakes as a result. So I can imagine lots of different types of lives that we might uncover in the laboratory if we test it. Uh, and then that would expand our imagination as to what we might expect and the, in different environments, uh, you know, on other planets, elsewhere, uh, under extreme conditions. So I think it will open up a, a window for uh, things that are different than us, life as we don't know it. And that would be tremendously exciting. And I very much look forward to that. Uh, at the moment, our imagination is limited to what we have here on Earth. And uh, if I can imagine anyone visiting us, you know, it would be not biological creatures, but would probably be equipment uh, uh, with artificial intelligence that could outsmart us. I mean, we have uh, AI systems driving cars. Um, in the future, they might be in space, uh, AI, I call them AI astronauts and uh, another civilization that had more time to develop its technologies, uh, perhaps reached that phase where it sent probes that with uh, AI astronauts that are able to uh, 
uh, operate uh, autonomously because you know the distances between stars are so vast that it takes a long time to receive a signal from your sender. So it makes much more sense to send uh, equipment that is autonomous, that can work on its own, learn from experience through machine learning, and perhaps have a 3D printer that can repair damage to any parts that it has, and perhaps even replicate itself. And if you have self-replicating machines, in, in principle, within a billion years, you can pretty much fill up the Milky Way galaxy. And the, the only question is, do we live in such a reality? Because you know most stars form billions of years before the sun. So uh, the only way to answer this question is by looking out with telescopes. It's, it's not a philosophical question. We shouldn't debate it philosophically. We should just use our best telescopes to search for equipment from other civilizations. Is there a large push forward amongst many other scientists that want to go in this direction? Or is there a lot of like kind of like hesitancy, I would say, because I mean, just talking about it sounds insane. But I mean, a couple like not even a year ago, we were talking about a rocket that could launch and then also land at the same time. And now that's become more normalized. I just get this because I've kind of like with talking to so many academics, whether it's astrophysicists, radio astronomers, the issue that seems to be amongst the academics is problems with like institutional funding, whether it's not in a certain direction they want to go. And then in my fear would be maybe looking towards like a billionaire to be able to help you get your products across. And I necessarily don't know if I want the billionaires to, I mean, I'm sure they're not bad, but there's always that own like, Hey, can I get a little bit for myself as well too? Not just your project, but maybe that's the future. Maybe that's where we're going to excel in science? Well, um, a few multi-billionaires came to the porch of my home uh, half a year ago, and uh, they provided $2 million to my research fund and, uh, at Harvard University, and that allowed me to establish the Galileo project that I'm leading that has more than 100 scientists in, in search of uh, equipment from other civilizations uh, out there. And, uh, you know, it's a new frontier that was never pursued by uh, main mainstream scientists. And, uh, you know, people in academia often ridicule this subject. There was just uh, an article in Science Magazine uh, with that uh, feel to it uh, of uh, basically saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, at the periphery of, uh, of science. But it actually is not, because uh, if you think about it, we sent equipment to space and we exist on a planet that we call our home, the Earth. Uh, around the sun and uh, you know there are lots of there are tens of billions of stars like the sun in the Milky Way galaxy our own galaxy alone and then there are a trillion galaxies like it within the observable volume of the universe so uh, and about half of those sun-like stars have a planet the size of the earth roughly at the same separation you know that, that we figured out from the Kepler satellite uh, just a, a couple of years ago and um, so uh, if you ask me, I mean, most stars formed uh, billions of years before the sun, you know, it's much more likely that we are not special or unique or privileged uh, because circumstances are similar to what you find on earth elsewhere. And uh, it's actually extraordinary of us to think that, that we are unique, you know, that I would argue that is an extraordinary claim yeah. that we are special and unique. The first thing to check is whether something like us exists elsewhere. And, and for that, you know, that involves also searching for plastic bottles, you know, it's uh, that may carry a, a letter, you know, a, and um, for us, and because then we can learn from billions of years that preceded us, predated us, and perhaps realize, uh, you know, that not only that we are not alone, but there is a smarter kid on the block and we can learn from them. 
Uh, and the resistance in the academic community uh, is um, coming from, from two directions. Uh, one is um, the fear from the unknown. <clears throat> A lot of uh, people prefer to stick to what we already know uh, because when you embark on a new territory, it looks uh, um, strange and unusual and it's not something you are used to and it threatens your ego because you want to pretend that you're an expert, that you know everything, that you, will, that you can explain everything that you see based on the knowledge that you have. You know, when I was a kid, I remember vividly sitting at dinner and asking a difficult question and then the adults in the room would dismiss the question simply because they didn't know the answer. And that's pretty much the response of most of the academic community to this subject right now. They don't know if we are alone. They don't know if we are the most intelligent. It flatters our ego to think that we are unique and special. And so they would say, it's an extraordinary claim that there is something out there. You need to bring me extraordinary evidence for me to even discuss it. But my point is extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. If you're not funding the search, you would never find it. And actually in the mainstream of science, you have searches for things we haven't found yet. For example, the nature of the dark matter. Most of the matter in the universe is unknown. It's uh, probably particles that we've never detected. And so over the past 40 years, there were searches for those. Uh, the most recent in the Large Hadron Collider, you know, we smashed particles uh, with high energies and that experiment cost us $10 billion. And there was a hope to find supersymmetric particles that perhaps make up the dark matter, but we didn't find them, $10 billion. And um, so, and, and if you think about it, uh, finding what the dark matter is, if it's a supersymmetric particle, would have very little uh, impact on our daily lives. Finding a piece of equipment that came from another civilization would have huge impact on the way we perceive ourselves and uh, you know, on, on the technologies we develop, uh, our, our aspirations in space and so forth, religious beliefs. So how is it possible that a subject that is so much of interest to the public, and I should say the government as well, because just a few weeks ago, President Biden signed into law uh, the uh, legislation by the US Congress to establish a new office in government that would study ev evidence or data uh, obtained by military personnel, intelligence agencies on uh, unidentified objects uh, near earth. And uh, if the government puts money in, in this direction, how can academia ignore it, ridicule it? Uh, after all, you know, the government is much supposed to be much more conservative. Um, and uh, in this uh, article that just appeared in Science Magazine, there were two people quoted as supporting the Galileo project that I established. One of them was the head of NASA, Bill Nelson. And the other one was the former director of the National Science Foundation, Franz Cordova. And I find it peculiar that, you know, the leaders of uh, federal organizations that support science advocate for this subject to be, to be studied, whereas people from within academia that are supposed to be more open-minded ridicule it and resist it and say, now the Galileo project is all about collecting evidence using the scientific method by building telescopes that would find data uh, on anything that might look unusual near earth, any, any object. How can anyone oppose that approach. Uh, any opposition or any uh, 
critics of the Galileo project must not agree with the scientific method. And I find it really strange that people who pretend to be scientists in academia have an issue with a project that is trying to assemble evidence. That's all. There is nothing beyond the Galileo project other than collecting data. And the data is collected based on uh, telescope systems that are funded by the private sector. That's yeah. the other thing related to what you asked. So we are not taking money out of existing searches for dark matter, for example. It's not as if someone can say, well, I wanted to search for a, cer a certain supersymmetric particle and you are taking the money away from me. Therefore, I resist this project. No, we are bringing money that wouldn't be used for science otherwise. Yet people who pursue the search for dark matter have an issue with the Galileo project, who is which is doing something of much more interest to the public and the government. I find it strange. How is that possible? I, I, one important part about the Galileo project um, is also the fact that it's an open source for anybody, a common person like myself, to be able to see, you know, you know, at least even be able to contact someone like yourself to be able to have a conversation. Because I find I learn best through actually speaking with someone and being able to sense out kind of like, oh, okay, you're, you're able to explain it to me easier than if I read an article. But a lot of like, if you look at UFO Twitter, for instance, there's experiencers, there's researchers, it's more infighting than it is anything. And you start to see that when that kind of gets classified in where you might have some of your critics that would say, we're not going to research into that because it's been skepticized or it's been kind of labeled in such a way for the longest time as being like so far out of the world or so far out of the realm of possibility that it could be something from maybe another civilization. I mean, even with all the talk about it now, it, to me, it's strange. Like, why is Bill Nelson going up on TV and talking about like finding our origins on Mars and then, you know, talking about atmosphere, but right below the atmosphere of like, I think it was Venus or something where that you might be livable. And I'm like, we've never seen any of this, but if you pull up old documents with NSA and CIA, there's, they're talking about it. And it's like, so this is strange. Is it a pool for funding? Is it a way of trying to say, Hey, this is right in our face. We have to acknowledge it. Cause then there's the weather phenomena as well. I don't know if the Galileo project has looked into ball phenomena or uh, the, was it lightning ball phenomena? So, so the Galileo project has two, branches. One is to look at those unidentified objects in the Earth's atmosphere and for that and, and to figure out their nature, okay, so whether they are human-made, whether they are natural phenomena like you were mentioning ball lightnings or whatever, uh, or you know in the atmosphere, or uh, something else. And um, uh, one way to find out is by building telescope systems and we are uh, assembling the first one on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory in the coming months. And once it works, we will make copies of it and distribute them in different locations. Uh, currently, we have about $2 million to have hundreds of those copies. We need about $100 million. And I very much hope that we will get that funding uh, from private donations. But um, the idea is to basically take a video of the sky uh, in the infrared, in visible light, either during daytime or nighttime in the infrared, you can see anything that is warm um, or in the radio or audio and record that and try to figure out if there are any objects that are not birds, drones, airplanes, or natural phenomena in the atmosphere. And uh, we will use artificial intelligence algorithms to filter out the different uh, type of objects. And if we find something that is uh, from uh, another 
place, not from Earth, that would be extremely intriguing. And um, aside from the telescope systems that we will build on the ground, we are also planning to use satellite data uh, that uh, will um, be provided by Planet Labs uh, that have a fleet of 210 satellites going around the Earth and taking a snapshot of every place on Earth with a resolution of four meters every day. So, uh, you know, we, we could look at the unidentified objects from above and they could be above the atmosphere also. I mean, they don't need to be aerial phenomena. They could be just phenomena and we will try to study them. Uh, and um, then there is the second branch of the Galileo project related to objects that enter the solar system but do not come extremely close to Earth. These are called inter interstellar objects, objects that came from outside that are not bound to the sun, not gravitationally bound to the sun, like the planets are or asteroids or comets that we have seen in the solar system before. And the first uh, object of that type that was discovered uh, uh, in 2017 was uh, given the name Oumuamua. It was found by a telescope in Hawaii. And I wrote the book, Extraterrestrial, describing the anomalies of this object and why we don't think it's a comet or uh, an asteroid of the type we have seen before. It has very strange, it had very strange behavior and uh, was most likely flat and was pushed away from the sun. It, it appeared as if it could be of artificial origin. And we want to find the next Oumuamua within the Galileo project and send a camera that will come close to it and take a close-up photograph because they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, yeah. the number of words in my book. Um, yeah, when you see that comet, or not comet, when you see a Moa and it, it, it just, I was trying to kind of, guess, create a scenario where an asteroid could hit it and make it form like that, like perfectly. There's not really, because the way that it's shaped is just too, it's too like uncanny perfect. Like it's just something that's like, it couldn't be just by space rocks hitting it and forming it that way. This is something that looked like it was crafted out in a sense of that way, which, I mean, I guess that brings into the point of it being artificially created. But when it comes to like uh, experiences or people that see the UFOs, you see the video cameras and the Tic Tac and all this, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the data that was released is not of high enough quality. And it's quite possible the government has classified data of much uh, better quality. And the reason I say that is because uh, former CIA directors, Brennan and Woolsey, former director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, and former president Barack Obama, and head of NASA, Bill Nelson, they all spoke uh, about it very seriously. And they saw the classified uh, ice, the, the, the part of the iceberg that is classified. We see just the tip of the iceberg that is public. Uh, so the data that we see is not convincing, you know, it's uh, usually fuzzy images moving in some way, and you don't know what the cameras were doing at the time and, you know, in a jittery cockpit of a fighter jet. Um, so, um, but given the suggestions by those who saw the classified information, uh, it appears very intriguing and the Galileo project hopes to collect its own data that is new using state-of-the-art instrumentation that could be far better than uh, these uh, military personnel were, were using. And since the sky is not classified, you know, we can look at it and find similar objects if they're still out there. And uh, 
uh, the data will be open to the public uh, because you know we buy the instruments off the shelf they're not classified in any way like the government owned the sensors and um, uh, then the public can decide for itself you know what to make of it um, so um, that's the hope with the Galileo project to bring transparency to the uh, to, to this subject and also bring it to the mainstream of science. Personally, how do you try and balance out like kind of your thoughts on all of this too? And also when you were writing the book, for instance, like what, what was your, what were you thinking at the time? I mean, if you were facing criticisms for even mentioning that it could be extraterrestrial life, because I can see, I mean, that's uh, for a lot of people, they need to see it and having nothing up until this point of that, that idea could easily label you something. But I mean, in my opinion, it's kind of shoved you out there and let everyone know. I mean, you got on Joe Rogan's podcast, you've done multiple announcements about it. It's kind of helped build up your progress in a way, because I feel like you need to be against a little bit of the system in a way. The fact that everyone's thinking so one set or one direction. I think theories are important. Obviously, it's cool to skepticize and it's cool to have all these different ideas and belief. I try and be as open-minded as possible, but to narrow it down and say that it's impossible that it's that, I'm like, I don't think impossible is a word we should be using. I just say that we should keep it, you know, keep it on the back burner, you know, keep that idea out there. Well, it's not so much back burner because this uh, possibility is extremely important for the future of humanity in terms of figuring out the reality that we live in. And if you keep insisting, you know, nobody's knocking on my door, therefore I don't have neighbors, um, you know, you may be wrong. And the fact that you say you have no neighbors will not get rid of your neighbors. You need to look through the windows and better with telescopes. So, you know, Enrico Fermi argued, where is everybody like about the extraterrestrials? And my point is, you know, the, he, he wasn't even using a telescope. He was just saying that. And, and that's a circular argument. That's the argument that a lot of people are saying, give me extraordinary evidence. Well, if you, put, if you don't put the extraordinary funds in the search, you will never get that extraordinary evidence. And that's our experience. You know, uh, the National Science Foundation had to invest $1.1 billion in the LIGO experiment. And a lot of people ridiculed this experiment for decades. And I know it firsthand from the person who sort of uh, dreamt the concept, uh, Ray Wise, uh, and even people at his home institution at MIT were ridiculing it. I remember when I entered the field of astrophysics, I heard people at Princeton University ridiculing it, uh, and he had to face this resistance, and uh, gladly the National Science Foundation uh, provided the $1.1 billion at the end, and, and then in 2015, guess what? The gravitational wave was detected, and it, the signal was much larger than expected, actually. And, and in 2017, the Nobel Prize was awarded to the LIGO experiment. Now, my point is, if people were saying gravitational waves are an ex detection of them is an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence, and we should not engage in any discussion on gravitational waves until you provide that uh, evidence, and then they would not fund the search then we would be at the same point. You're right. We will never detect uh, gravitational waves. Those people will be justified at ridiculing it. You can keep it in the back burner of any person, like you are suggesting, in any place in academia, and it will stay in the back burner forever. In the back burner forever. The only way to move it from the back burner to actually make some progress on the subject is to give $1.1 billion to fund the LIGO experiment that is capable of detecting the gravitational waves. 
Now, the experiment itself was dependent on whether there are sources in the sky that provide those waves. You know, if there were no black holes colliding, then the, we would not detect the signal. Then there would be no Nobel Prize. Then all these people that were arguing against the LIGO experiment and ridiculing it for decades, including people at MIT that were colleagues of Ray Wise, they would be justified as saying, look, we told you, it's hopeless. There is no point in discussing this, no point in funding it. And that was something up to nature, right? To provide those black holes that collide and produce the ripples in space-time that we can detect. So there are two aspects to it. One is we are supposed to be willing to put a billion dollars towards detecting gravitation waves. And then nature has to produce those waves for us to detect, okay? We can put the billion dollars, but nature would never give us the gravitational waves. And then we would see nothing. But my point is without the billion dollars, we would never have detected those waves that nature did produce fortunately. Yeah. So when people say, let's put it in the back burner, even the tolerate people, um, you know, let's not ridicule it so much. And then you have the majority of people that just ridicule it. Under these circumstances, you would never change your perception of reality. Okay. Yeah. By the way, you can even put goggles of the metaverse on your head and think that you are at the center of the universe. So what Galileo Galilei said four centuries ago that no, the earth moves around the sun. You can put these goggles and still be in the metaverse at the center of the universe, okay? And, you know, virtual realities are quite abundant. You can believe in a virtual reality in which you are at the center of the universe. There is no other intelligence except for us. You can ridicule everyone you want and you will be happy. Now, the question is, is this the reality that you actually live in that all of us share? Because the philosophers during the days of Galileo that put him in house arrest, and today they would have uh, ridiculed him on social media and canceled him, uh, they refused to look through his telescope. So he actually built the telescope. He had the money to build the telescope. Yet they said, no, we don't want to look through your telescope. So there is another, another level of maintaining your ignorance, which is not only not to fund the experiment the way uh, you know, you maintain your circle. You can keep your circular argument by saying, okay, well, someone gave me that evidence. I don't want to look at it. And that is what happened in Gal Galileo's days. And he was put in house arrest so that people will not hear his argument. Uh, the philosophers were much more politically powerful and they were liked by everyone. Today, they would have had the largest number of likes on Twitter. And you ask yourself, okay, if you went to those philosophers and you were to ask them to build a rocket, that will reach Mars, they would never get there because they thought that Mars moves around the earth. So the fact that they were powerful enough to put Galileo in house arrest, to ridicule him, to not allow him to speak with anyone and to say, no, the sun moves around the earth. That fact did not change anything about the motion of the earth around the sun. And moreover, nowadays, nobody remembers those philosophers. You don't even know their names but everyone remembers Galileo. So my point is, it's not a matter of popular opinion. It's not a matter of people being tolerant and keeping it in the back burner so that sometime in the future, maybe we will consider that, but for now it's in the back. That is not the issue. These philosophers could have put the notion that the earth moves around the sun in the back burner and never let it flourish, never examine the evidence. 
The point is different. The point is you need to make an effort to learn about the reality that we all live in because it's always attractive for humans to believe in virtual realities that make us special, unique, and that flatter our ego. You know that it's always like that. Um, we always want to think that we are at the center of the universe. We want to think that the Earth-Sun system is really unique and special. So there is this natural tendency, and I can understand it because both my daughters, when they were young, they thought that they are at the center of the, of the world until I took them to the kindergarten. And of course, they didn't like that. Uh, reality that they met at the kindergarten where there are other kids that might be smarter than they are. You know, we think that Albert Einstein was the most, the smartest scientist that ever lived, but what's the chance that Albert Einstein was the most clever scientist since the Big Bang? The Big Bang was 13.8 billion years ago. There were so many stars, so many planets like the Earth before us. You know, it's very likely that there was another scientist much more, much smarter than Albert Einstein that lived more than a billion years ago around another star. And, yeah. and, and that culture of science produced equipment far more advanced than we have right now, okay? It's not iPhone 13, it's iPhone 1000 that you should think about or 1 million. Uh, who knows what kind of technologies they developed over periods of time that far exceed the century that we developed our technology over. So the point is we should be modest. Uh, it's a sign of arrogance to think that we are privileged and without even checking. And ridiculing is just like the adults in the room did to the questions that I tried to pose as a kid. And, you know, it's really not a clever way to uh, advance our knowledge. It's um, something that we should have learned from the philosophers during the day of Galileo, not to do that, uh, but allow the evidence to educate us. I'm now thinking back burner was a bad word for it. more of a, a general, I would say curiosity. I think there's a large amount of fighting that happens between different sides of opinions and thought when really there should just be a general discourse. It's weird how everyone wants something new, but then they'll criticize an idea that is new, um, mostly because it feels like it's taking them in the wrong direction. I've heard so many different theories and a hypothesis when it comes to the UAP UFO. In my opinion, I thought it could have been a weather phenomena, but I, I mean, after listening to so many of your interviews that you've done, hearing you talk about it a little bit more in depth. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. This thing just randomly came into our solar system, for instance, and we just got a glimpse of it. I kind of think of us more of as like an ant um, and like, we're just getting like, someone's just walking by us. They don't know we're there. They could step on us at any moment, but we just happened to capture a, a little bit of that. But some people like to think they were targeted specifically and chosen to, you know, whatever experience, whatever that they were going to, I guess, do, um, it, it, it makes it more difficult, but there's that general curiosity and mystery. And I don't know if it's a fear aspect of why they condemn another person's views, either self-preservation, maybe because their idea seems to be their own reality. I mean, we're all living in our own reality. And it seems like a lot of people rather transfer that online. Me, I don't want to do virtual reality. I like this one that I'm in because it's all I can handle. Um, but I think this curiosity, this understanding is out there for more people to talk about. And uh, general discourse, for instance, academia.com and all these different sites, Galileo uh, Project and everything as well, too. It's an open access source for people that are curious and want to know more. I mean, yeah. you play but a very the, important I, part. I think the biggest lesson we should learn from Galileo Galilei, uh, you know, he taught us uh, four centuries ago that very often we are wrong. So it's not about ideas, okay? Uh, the, the world of ideas is infinite. 
And we can think that, uh, you know, that there is the multiverse, that there are extra dimensions, like many mainstream physicists argue for. We can think about many things that uh, demonstrate that we are smart and so forth. That's irrelevant. You know, what is relevant for us to uh, advance our knowledge is doing experiments, learning from evidence, you know, because the evidence allows us to sort those ideas that work, that describe the reality we live in, and those that do not. You know, in the case of the Earth moving around the sun, looking through our telescope or Galileo's telescope, eventually, you know, allows NASA now to design space missions that reach their destination. If we were to continue to believe in an idea that is wrong, we would never reach that destination. And another example is, you know, think about Bernie Madoff. He gave people a wonderful idea that if they give him their money, he can make more of it, irrespective of what the stock market does. Now, who doesn't like that idea? They liked it so much that they gave him their money, all these people, and everyone was happy. He was happy, they were happy, until they did the experiment, which was to tell him, give us our money back. And then he couldn't deliver because that didn't describe the reality that we all share. And at that point, he was put in jail. So my point is, when you do experiments, when you test ideas, you should be able to figure out which one is a Ponzi scheme, which one is not real, which one is a virtual reality by testing. And it's not a nuance. It's not something you say, okay, let's debate. And some people will put these ideas in the back burner. Others will find these ideas appealing. And let's text about them, tweet about them. And we are all happy then go to dinner, continue to debate about ideas. It's not ideas. The issue is not talking about ideas. The issue is getting data and evidence that will allow us to sort those ideas that describe the reality we live in. It's just like looking through the window and fi finding out, for example, whether we have neighbors. You know, you can sit at home, close off the windows and talk about possible ideas about neighbors, you know, and say, you know, maybe our neighbors are this, maybe they are that. I like this idea more than that idea. Maybe we don't have neighbors. You know, you can talk forever and you can like those ideas on Twitter and like other ideas on Twitter. My point is open the windows, look out and see who your neighbors are. That will be the way, the way to educate yourself about the reality that you live in. And the same is true about extraterrestrial civilizations. We should be brave enough to, instead of ridiculing this possibility or that possibility, just collecting data by looking through our telescopes and saying we don't have extraordinary evidence is basically like burying our heads in the sand because we are not trying to collect evidence. Therefore, we will never find evidence. The only way to find evidence is by putting money into the search. And by putting money, I mean, at least the same amount of money that we put towards searching for the dark matter over the past 40 years. If you search for technological equipment from other civilizations, you know, if we invest billions of dollars in that search for 40 years and we don't find anything, we would be exactly the same place where dark matter searches are right now. And they are part of the mainstream. So how can mainstream scientists say, this subject doesn't deserve attention because there is no extraordinary evidence. Well, guess what? The dark matter nature was not found, even though billions of dollars were invested. So let's put first the billions of dollars in the search for technological equipment from other civilians. Given that the government is interested in that, given the public is interested in that, that would be our litmus test 
that will be the way for us to educate ourselves. That's the way to look through our windows and check if we have neighbors rather than argue forever in the Twitter sphere or other social media or you know hypothetically it's because those arguments are just like asking how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin you know you can do intellectual gymnastics you know in the context of um, Oumuamua there was an article published in Nature Astronomy a very prestigious journal uh, last year that by a philosopher who said based on philosophical reasoning it must be natural in origin and I asked myself, haven't we learned something over the past four centuries since Galileo time that philosophical reasoning is not the way to do it? So I'm arguing, let's not discuss it hypothetically. Let's just do the experiment and search. And let's invest the same amount of money in this search, at least as much as in the search for dark matter or other scientific endeavors. You're making me kind of question more if people even want to know if there's anything out there. Not not people like yourself, but just a general consensus. And I guess academia, for instance, it seems like a lot of people aren't willing to want to go explore out there either because they're afraid or they don't care for it or they want to be the person that's leading that charge because that would be an amazing discovery for that person who's able to do that. Right, right. Actually, all of the above, I would say. And um, but if you look at like three weeks, uh, about a month ago, uh, President Biden signed the, the, the defense budget uh, that was $768 billion, okay? And uh, if you think about the defense budget, it's meant to defend the United States against adversaries from, you know, from other nations. Um, so it's basically people protecting themselves against other people, okay? Seven, almost a trillion dollars in one year. Uh, that, and and uh, if you ask, if you compare that to science, you know, that was thousands of times more than the amount of money invested in a project like the Large Hadron Collider or like the James Webb Space Telescope, which were both about $10 billion over several decades by multiple nations collaborating. So, thousands of time more in defending people against people, okay? Now, suppose the Galileo project finds a piece of equipment from another civilization. It's possible that the government will then say, well, you know, maybe we were just like kids playing in the playground, you know, in, in the kindergarten and, uh, you know, always worrying about what the other kid would do. And then now we realize there is a city out there where a lot of action is happening and we've been focusing just here on this playground. You know, that makes very little sense. So we should invest similar amounts of money, a trillion dollars a year, trying to figure out the bigger environment that we live in. And in that case, what should we do with a trillion dollars a year? I'm not talking about a hundred million that the Galileo project needs. I'm not talking about 10 billion that the Large Hadron Collider got. I'm talking about a trillion dollar in one year. And that's what we spend on defense right now. So if we were to have that, we could build much bigger and better telescopes than the Galileo project is dreaming about and search the sky. We could send probes to our cosmic neighborhood to try and figure out. And we need to reorganize human society in a way because any realization that there is a smarter kid on the block will change everything. So I'm just saying, look, this, is, this could be the biggest item on our agenda if we find a piece of equipment. And so how can that subject be pushed aside and not looked into? 
Well, a lot of people are looking at the picture kind of like like a keyhole in a sense because, I mean, we're focused on our average or other people attacking us, another country attacking us, rather than the grand scale that there might be something else outside of our orbit that is going to be attacking us. I mean, I liked your idea. Well, not necessarily. I, I wouldn't assume that attacking us because they could have attacked us a long time ago. Yeah. So the fact that we didn't... Uh, uh, suffer any da damages uh, from another civilization out there implies in my mind that we are not that significant. You know, they don't, as you said before, they don't care much about us. Uh, it's just like you walk, walking on, on the street and, you know, there are some ants on the pavement. You don't pay attention to those because they don't stand up to your level of interest. It's um, kind of like I was talking to two friends of mine, uh, Dr. Serene Nemi and Haystack Grobler. Haystack Grobler is a radio astronomer in Africa, and he was talking about his satellite system. He's like, they've learned, I mean, you could turn that into a weapon. There's actually a clause in it where it's like you're not supposed to point it down. You can start a forest fire or something of that sort. And I go, that's the whole thing. It's like they're only going to be interested if they can weaponize it, which kind of dismisses the whole area of research for it because exploring out there is one of the most important things. I mean, we're looking at a frontal problem, which is like, oh, today I have to go to work or something what about next week what about next month what about next year i like that that long game is the game that i'm after oh yeah definitely i mean if you think about it most of the work we do uh, is driven by the idea that we might not exist you know a hundred years from now so when we die you know the question is what do we leave behind and you know one uh, way to maintain longevity is to have kids you know you you leave your genetic making the dna uh, in your kids some but um you know, that's just like a Xerox machine. You're making copies of something that existed already. And then you can do some creative work, uh, you know, like music. You can write a book uh, that will uh, live beyond your life. Uh, we still talk about very important works of art and that, that um, you know, were, were made uh, thousands of years ago. And um, so that's another way to leave something behind. Then, you know, when I go to the university, I see statues or paintings of past presidents of Harvard University. Uh, and I say, okay, well, these people wanted to preserve uh, a copy of their physical appearance somehow, but all of this will go away when the sun will burn up the surface of earth in a billion years. See, nothing will be left. So the only way to leave something behind is actually to send it to space. Uh, if you send an AI astronaut that represents what you care about, uh, it, it could live it could survive for billions of years in space, even beyond the sun. And to me, that is the most meaningful monument that I can make uh, that will stick around. And therefore, I'm very proud of uh, our technological kids, you know, AI systems and so forth. And I very much hope that during my lifetime, I'll be able to send an AI system that will represent me to space. I just got a, one more question for you because I know you got to get ready to go. Um, class, civilizations, for instance, if we're going to colonize in space, do you think that's a possibility with the amount of kind of like war tactics that happen now, whether it's stealing information off of another satellite? Do you think that's a possibility that we can get over our own egos to be able to reach that factor? Well, it's, it's basically Darwinian uh, selection. You see that if we don't get over our weaknesses, we will not survive. Okay, so we will change the climate uh, and then the earth will be unsustainable beyond a certain, you know, several centuries from now, uh, we will cause so much damage uh, that, that we will not, you know, be able to stay on earth. And if we are not smart enough, we will not uh, leave the earth in time.
Okay, so in a, another way, holistic way to think about it is from the point of view of Darwinian selection, we were not intelligent enough to survive. Okay, and there were lots of species that disappeared from Earth, right, in the past. So we will be, you know, just like the dinosaurs, we will be something that existed for a while and then died, perished. And it's possible that on other planets, there were other civilizations like ours that were self-destructive and didn't survive and they're dead by now. We could look for relics of them. Maybe it will teach us a lesson. But the point is, the way I see it is holistically, I see it, you know, I, I, I argue, let's be smart enough to survive and in the long run. And, um, you know, that's what I try to do in my writings. But if nobody listens, we sort of deserve it. Well, I appreciate you for giving me your time to be able to speak today. Um, is there a place that people can find like any links uh, to any of your books, um, Galileo Project? I'm going to link it all in the description, but if you know those links offhand and you want to let people know this is where they can go find them. Yeah, so I have a professional website. If you put my name, Avi Loeb, uh, Harvard University in Google, uh, you would find a professional website that has uh, all my opinion essays uh, that you can see. Uh, I mean, just this week, I wrote uh, a few of them. Um, and um, also videos from some interviews and a link to my book, uh, Extraterrestrial, and, and another book, uh, Life in the Cosmos, that I published this year. So I very much hope you can find more material of interest there. And I'll link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.